0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 83. Willem van Gemmeren gives this psalm the title, A Lament Concerning the Presence of Evil. He sees the ten enemy nations listed as symbolic of the enemies of God's people in general, which, of course, does not necessarily rule out its having been written with a specific evil enemy in mind. The psalmist wants to see these enemies thwarted, shamed, judged, and perhaps even converted, or at least brought to the place where they will have no choice but to ascribe glory, honor, and majesty to God Most High. Interestingly, Psalm 83 is one of a handful of psalms that was omitted from the Roman Catholic Liturgy of the Hours, or at least the most recent version of the Roman Catholic Liturgy of the Hours. Psalm 83 and these others were deemed to be psychologically stressful. Gordon Wenham has written a fair bit on the need to retain these difficult psalms. He says, the Old Testament views history as a constant struggle between order and chaos, life and death, and these psalms represent the psalmist taking sides with order, quote. And by praying them in the church today, we make it clear that we are taking sides as well. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These difficult psalms add some very helpful content to those familiar refrains. Psalm 83 is generally classified as one of the imprecatory psalms, which are really just the strongest specimens of lament psalms. So this is a strong complaint against the oppression of evil and the continued existence of malevolent adversaries. Hear now the word of the Lord. A song a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. I love the title that J. Alec Machir gives to the first section of the psalm. He calls it, Conspiracy Countered by Prayer. (laughs) That is absolutely brilliant, and remarkably timely as well. As I record this episode, we are in month three of this COVID-19 pandemic. In other words, we have entered the conspiracy theory stage of the pandemic. In the first stage, we were excited. It was was like a fun adventure. We'll all stock up on toilet paper and do a movie night or seven. But now people are afraid and angry and looking for someone to blame. And so all manner of bizarre and unusual theories are being advanced as to how this strange virus came to be released into the world. And, of course, the Bible reminds us that as Christians, we are not to call conspiracy everything that this world calls conspiracy. Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13 says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Close quote. As Christians, we are not supposed to obsess over potential secondary causes. We are to obsess over certain primary causes. God is the primary cause of everything. So, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And yet, that is not to say that there is no such thing as a conspiracy. Isaiah was told not to call All that this people calls conspiracy, conspiracy. And that is good counsel, because most of what this world calls conspiracy is not. People generally are not capable of the levels of coordination, communication, and complexity that most conspiracy theories would call for. But conspiracies do exist. This psalm is talking about one. That's what verse 3 says. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. There is a conspiracy in this universe to wipe out the people of God. Look at verse 5. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. The NIV of verse 8 is actually a little clearer in my estimation. It says, even Assyria has joined them to reinforce Lot's descendants. Again, the fact that 10 nations are listed here inclines us to understand this list in a symbolic sense. All the nations, or a great host of nations, are involved in this conspiracy. They all work together to oppose and destroy the people of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, before you dismiss this as a form of prophetic paranoia, you may want to recall that this is basically what Revelation chapter 12 in the New Testament is saying as well. In Revelation 12, the apostle John has a vision about a dragon that wants to destroy the covenant community. He, he wants to destroy Jesus, the child that is given birth to by the covenant community, by mother church, you might say. At the start of the vision, the dragon is pursuing the woman so as to eat her child. But the child is born and ascends into heaven, and the dragon can never get near him. So in wrath, he turns his attention against mother church. Verse 17 says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, That he stood on the sand of the sea means that he took his stand against the church from within the nation's of the people. The sea in Revelation generally stands for the people, the mass, the swirling mass of humanity. It is out of the sea that the beast arises. So the point is that all across the pages of the Bible, there is this idea that there is a conspiracy against God's people, and its author is the devil. He whispers lies into the ears of nations and leaders, and he causes them to act in such a way as to harm and oppress God's people. That's the conspiracy. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, this is ultimately a spiritual battle, brothers and sisters, not a political battle. We won't defeat this foe on Facebook with our many posts. We won't defeat it at the polls in a general election. This foe is a spiritual foe, and therefore our warfare must be spiritual in nature. Revelation 12, 11 predicts that very thing. Looking forward over the entire course of the battle, the voice from heaven says, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's how our enemy is ultimately defeated. That's, that's how the church wins. We conquer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. We conquer by loving not our lives unto death. That is to say, we win by being willing to die because of our love and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Christians win by dying. How could it be any other? For we serve the crucified Savior, thanks be to God. But, of course, we've gotten way ahead of ourselves. The psalmist sees the conspiracy, but he does not yet see the Christ. Though he certainly knows about the ultimate instigator of all these troubles, his focus here is squarely on the immediate human agents of his trouble. He says in verse 9, Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastors of God. And these, of course, are stories from the book of Judges. The psalmist mines the past for resources in the present spiritual struggle, and we would do well to follow that example. Do it again, Lord. You have defeated our enemies in the past, but they have regathered, Lord. You destroy one enemy and another rises to take its place. And of course, that's the nature of a demonic conspiracy. The immediate human agents are just puppets. Moab today, Assyria the next day, Babylon the day after that. The real enemy, of course, remains in shadow. But today's enemies are all that matters from a certain point of view, certainly from the point of view of the psalmist. If you're being assaulted by the Assyrians, then it is the Assyrians that really matter. If the Assyrians are banging on your front gate, then it is there that you need the power and deliverance of Almighty God. And so that is what he prays for in verse 13. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill them with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, while the psalm was likely written to be used by God's people whenever they found themselves facing a terrible enemy, it may well have been written first for use against those dreaded Assyrians. Obviously, if it had been written in Babylon after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, we would have expected Babylon to be listed as the 10th and crowning power in opposition to God's people, not Assyria. So it probably was written originally as a prayer against a particular enemy, an enemy camped around the gates of Jerusalem, an enemy that surely played the part of a surrogate of Satan. And this would have been a perfect prayer for that occasion. And if so, then happily, it was a prayer that God answered. To get the full effect of this psalm, you should read it aloud and imagine it as a prayer commissioned by King Hezekiah as the Assyrian army gathered around Jerusalem like a python wrapping itself around the body of its victim. The choir master of the Asaphite choir seeks the Lord and pens this prayer, the last one in the Bible ascribed to his choir, and he delivers it to the desperate monarch huddling in his chambers. The king prays this psalm before the Lord, and perhaps he has it sung by singers from the choir in the courts of the temple. And then having done all that he can, he goes to sleep. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherazer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. 2 Kings nineteen thirty-five to 37 If this was the prayer, then... That was the answer to it. Thanks be to God. The RMM plan has us reading two Psalms today, so if you have your Bible with you, keep it open now to Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the gitteth, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh Sing for joy to the living God. This is a pilgrim psalm, and it bears many similarities to Psalm 42, which is also one of the psalms of the sons of Korah. Perhaps they specialized in pilgrim psalms. Derek Kidner believes that it was written by a pilgrim in exile. He understands it as a prayer and a poem written by a worshiper who, for some reason, was unable to make the actual pilgrimage and therefore is forced to make the journey in his heart, as it were. The several expressions of deep longing and desperate desire do seem to support that conjecture. Kidner says, often it is the exile who appreciates home, while the stay-at-homes find fault with it. And so perhaps this is a psalm that was written by a would-be pilgrim but it would certainly have been sung and enjoyed by actual pilgrims. It was a great psalm for pilgrims to be singing as they walked their way to Jerusalem. It would have helped to fuel their already heightened expectations. Verse 3 says, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. You can certainly imagine poor travelers from Galilee singing this song as they walked with Jesus southwards and and then upwards from Jericho toward the gates of Jerusalem. How marvelous for them to think that even poor, humble, common sparrows found such a warm welcome in the house of the Lord. If there is a, a space and a welcome for the sparrows, then surely there will be a welcome extended to even the poorest among us as well. Verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, there was no actual Valley of Bacca that we know of. J. Alec Montier thinks that that phrase would better be translated the Valley of Balsam, but even still, we don't know of a Valley of Balsam either. It is probably intended as a poetic expression. Balsam trees grew in arid places, and so the Valley of Balsam likely speaks of a faith that reaches out for blessing. In hard places. By faith, pilgrims make springs of arid places. That's the idea being expressed poetically here. And the closer they get to God, according to the psalmist, the more they feel the magnetic pull of God upon their hearts. That's the meaning of verse 7. And it runs parallel to the principle expressed in James 4:8 in the New Testament, which says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you pilgrims get stronger and stronger the closer they come to Zion. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Here the psalmist breaks off his consideration of the pilgrims and their journey, and he offers a prayer for the prince. Van Gemeren says here, since he too is dependent on the Lord's blessing, the psalmist prays that the great king may extend his goodness to the earthly ruler. Quote. And as Christians, we are commanded to do the same. Verse 10 For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And these are some of the most beautiful words recorded in the entire Old Testament. If such a song could be sung by the old covenant saints on their way to Jerusalem, how much more should it be found on our lips as we make our way to the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come? Blessed is the one who makes that pilgrim journey. Blessed is the one who perseveres through the arid valley and who by faith is able to harvest spiritual blessings within it. Blessed is the one who arrives at the gates of the celestial city and presents his certificate of faith and is welcomed by the prince therein. O Lord of hosts, O precious Jesus, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at word.ca. Of course, the easiest way to make use of all the material we have at Into the Word is by getting a hold of our app. You can find that at the Apple App Store or Google Play, and it very helpfully organizes all the materials that we've produced over the years. You can also connect with us on Facebook, and I hope that you do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements, conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.